Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Steve Hayes. Sarah Isker is off this week. Today, I'm joined by John McCormick, a reporter, writer for National Review Magazine, and Haley Bird-Wilt, who covers Capitol Hill for the Dispatch. We will talk about the chaos that's unfolded on Capitol Hill this week, particularly on the Democratic side. We'll talk about the spending amounts, and we'll talk about the reporting process, how they go about getting their information. There's a lot to discuss in terms of what's happening on Capitol Hill, or as it happens, we're recording uh, Friday morning, what's not happening on Capitol Hill. I think maybe the the best place to start is just uh, with a big picture look, John. Um, At the beginning of this week, uh, this week was teed up as sort of the, the make or break week for the Biden administration's domestic policy agenda. You had a package Uh, an infrastructure package on Capitol Hill that uh, some moderate Democrats liked, progressive Democrats were okay with, but they care a lot more about this, what has been a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which is a much bigger package. And the question all week has been, how would Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Joe Biden finesse these gaps to bring Democrats together? Sitting where we're sitting on Friday, how has that worked? Uh, well, the answer is so far it hasn't worked. Um, you know, at the beginning of the week, uh, it was just unclear how it was going to work out, and it still hasn't. Uh, we got a bunch of news yesterday with Joe Manchin uh, seeming to leak a memo to Politico laying out his his ask, which is you know, or his ask or his limit. It's unclear of a one point five trillion dollar deal versus a three point five trillion dollar deal. Uh, the House Progressive Caucus, uh, led, bra- led by Congresswoman uh, Jayapal, says if anything close to that is the deal, they're not going to be al- they're not going to go along with it. Uh, she has said consistently that she has at least half of her 96 member caucus to uh, to kill the infrastructure bill to sort of shoot the hostage, uh, keep it hostage rather than shoot it. I don't know how you want to describe it. Willing to shoot it if it goes to the floor. Uh, if they don't get a deal on reconciliation. So Manchin and the moderates, the so-called, you know, the moderates, um, you know, they, they want the infrastructure bill to pass first, and then they're willing to negotiate after that on the scope and size and details of uh, this reconciliation bill on social spending. So the divide, uh, you know, to, t- to take a step back, you know, it's really, you know, it's 1.5 trillion versus 3.5 trillion on this reconciliation bill. But it's kind of interesting if you take a step back. Uh, you know, this this debate is in the context of uh, all the spending that they've already done. So, I mean, Manchin has already agreed to a one point nine trillion dollar reconciliation bill this March. Uh, you know, everybody supports this five hundred and some billion dollar infrastructure bill, and Congress is actually, as Brian Rydell pointed out yesterday, they're raising uh, baseline spending one trillion dollars over the next decade, just in regular spending bills, appropriations bills. So if you add it all up, you know, the, the debate really isn't between 1.5 trillion and 3.5 trillion. It's between 5 trillion in new spending and 7 trillion in new spending in 2021. And now this this all comes after the 2020 COVID spending of $4 trillion. Now obviously the time frames matter a lot here. That $4 trillion was spent 
immediately. And we're talking about five-year horizons and 10-year horizons in this new spending. But still, it just, it's, it's an insane amount of money. I mean, it just, it's just remarkable that uh, this, is the, this, is the, <laughs> this is where the moderate uh, mainstream divide, or the conservative mainstream divide within the Democratic Party uh, as I mentioned, was referred to as the conservative-leaning senator in the New York Times today. Yeah, it really, it really is interesting. I mean, Manchin put up um, a statement earlier this week in which he talked about the need to be fiscally responsible, to not add to the debt. And Haley, as John points out, we're still talking about massive, massive amounts of spending. We had Brian Riedel on our, our podcast uh, a week ago. And asked him to, to put this in perspective. And you know, he looked back and said, you look at this relative to the New Deal, the kinds of spending that we're talking about. And we're talking about New Deals, plural. Um, where, where are Republicans uh, on this, aside from just opposing it? And how much luck have they had m- making a case uh, for fiscal responsibility given the profligacy we witnessed from Republicans over the past four or five years. Um, That is a fair point. And I, you know, there's this sort of debate happening over the debt ceiling at the same time as all of this going on. And, um, you know, you sort of saw this week, Republicans are trying to tie these two things together. You know, Democrats need to do this on their own. They need to raise the debt ceiling um, because of all the spending they want to do is, is what Republicans are saying. Although it is the case that the debt ceiling would be reached regardless. I, they, they haven't passed the bill yet, you know, and, um, you know, much of the debt that they, that they is currently, need, uh, that the treasure, treasury department, uh, you know, needs to pay its bills with is, uh, from the Trump administration. Um, so, you know, you sort of have this side plot going on of, um, how they're trying to spin the debt ceiling amid all of this and in, in political campaigns going on. But I, I do think it's interesting, you know, in this debate, you see Democrats acting like this bipartisan infrastructure bill is like nothing. Um, and, you know, there was an interesting uh, blog post from Noah Smith, and he sort of laid out his argument of, I do not, he, he was saying, you know, I do not understand um, this strategy of, of holding this bill hostage. Um, and, and he included, you know, all of the hundreds of billions of dollars for road repair, for passenger trains, for making the power grid more uh, robust for public transit, um, for, for upgrading water infrastructure, including replacing all lead pipes in the country. Um, and his argument was sort of, um, the, the way to approach this is just to pass it and then put the pressure on to do the next thing instead of this sort of um, really Byzantine debate over timing and, and the process. Um, so I, I'm interested in your, Republicans have sort of landed on different sides of this um, in the House and the Senate, um, where, you know, you have some Republican senators who helped negotiate this bipartisan deal, um, who sort of believe, you know, uh, judging by Manchin's comments, by Cinema's comments, if you if you pass this bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, it's less likely that, uh, you know, the larger Biden uh, social investments plan is going to pass, um, which I, I think there's merit to that. And so do progressives. That's why they're, you know, sort of holding it hostage. Um, and I, I talked to Kevin McCarthy about this in the House. They have whipped so hard against this um, bi- bipartisan bill. Um, and, and I asked him, like, wh- why have you reached a different conclusion? Uh, you know, why do Republicans and progressives, uh, re- Republican senators, progressives in the House, why, why do they both think, um, you know, that if you pass this bipartisan bill, that it's less likely that the larger plan gets passed? Why do you not agree with them? 
And he just did not answer the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's sort of, you know, for him, he he's tying these two things together because procedurally they're tying them together uh, because of the progressive demands. And, um, you know, just the timing thing has been such a big debate. Um, but, but, you know, he didn't really have an answer for that because, you know, if, if both Republican senators and progressives have reached the same conclusion, um, it's, it's pretty unclear to me why, you know, GOP leadership in the House has not reached the same conclusion. Well, do you think, uh, how much do you think um, the answer to that might be very simple in two words, Donald Trump? He's opposed this. He's pushed the House to oppose Maybe. it. He's come after them. Is there another, is there another uh, more charitable explanation? I think it's campaign stuff. Like, you know, it helps to have this chaos. It helps Republic because the chaos is, you know, Democratic infighting. They, they're fighting over this. It's you know, if they if they just moved on it and passed it with Republican votes, none of this would be happening right now. Um, it, so, I, you know, part of it's just they want Democrats to look as in disarray as possible. Um, and it, that's what we've seen this week. So. Yeah, it um, seems to be pretty effective. Yeah. There, I did something <laughs> this morning that I almost never do, and that is I watched morning television. You uh, did? Morning, morning news television, yes. I I'm was listening to very, C-SPAN. Well, that's better That's better than what I took in. I was, <laughs> I was preparing for our conversation today, and I uh, caught a little bit of Morning Joe and a little bit of uh, CNN's New Day. It was interesting there. I mean, both. I think both of those shows typically reflect the kind of left-leaning conventional wisdom on a wide variety of issues um, and, and tend to have guests who are more, more or less supportive of the Biden administration and tend to have, uh, in the case of Morning Joe, hosts who are more or less supportive of the Biden administration. But what struck me about that conversation or those conversations was the sort of assumption that both of these things should pass um, CNN had a, a feature from John Ablon, who's a former editor of Newsweek and a sort of longtime centrist, um, and had positioned himself as a centrist, really going after Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin for slowing this thing down and pointing out that they used to support certain parts of uh, what's in the, the bigger reconciliation bill and are nonetheless slowing this down. Um, you, on, on Morning Joe, you had Joe Scarborough talking to Al Sharpton. Uh, and Al Sharpton was, it was very interesting, expressing frustration that the debate seems to be about $3.5 and $1.5 And he said something, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's pretty close. Nobody cares about the dollars. I can't even count that high. So this should be about kids and healthcare and COVID and you know, good works is, are they, are they, well, two, two questions first to you, John, are they right that the framing of this debate that has taken place on terms friendly to Republicans, because it really has focused on the dollar amounts more than it's focused on what's, what's in the bill. Um, number one and number two, uh, what do you make of the total demonization of mansion and cinema. Yeah. So one, it, it certainly is true that the entire uh, media framing of this <clears throat> has been about dollar amounts, 1.5 trillion versus 3.5 trillion. And the reason for that is because that is the debate between 
mansion in cinema and the rest of the caucus. Uh, it is also because it is such a gargantuan bill, $3.5 trillion. It is hard to get your mind around all the different pieces of it. And it's remarkable to the extent to which uh, I would say progressives haven't been able to make the case for the different specific pieces in here and why they're each important. And it's remarkable that Republicans haven't been able to focus on you know, particularly objectionable parts, and they're all focusing on the dollar amount. Now, that, that makes sense. You know, we've been on a spending binge. If you look at Manchin's op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from a few weeks ago, he talks about how, you know, the concern about this inflation tax, the concern is that, you know, everybody has a limit. I mean, even Bernie Sanders wouldn't say, well, I think Bernie Sanders would say, we can't spend it. We can't have a $20 trillion, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure bill. As for the, yeah, as for the demonization of Manchin and cinema. It's remarkable, as I said earlier. You know, they, <laughs> Mansion and Cinema uh, are ready to go along with five trillion dollars in new spending uh, authorized in 2021. New spending, in addition to all the spending we already had baked in, that we some of which a good chunk of which we can pay for. Uh, and so, it just is remarkable that they have been uh, really kind of smeared, I guess, on MSNBC. That's what prompted, I believe, Mansion and Cinema to release. This information that they had conveyed to Schumer privately, uh, the dollar amounts that they were willing to to, to spend on reconciliation. Um, it's very interesting to me that this information didn't come out sooner, and I'm curious if that was in part due to an agreement with Schumer that Schumer didn't want the rest of the caucus to know that they were only going to go to 1.5 trillion, so he could sort of rope in, you know, rope in the progressives and say, "Well, we'll deal with this later." Uh, I don't know. I think that's very curious. Uh, Schumer was very defensive uh, via a spokesman with his statement yesterday after Manchin released that document signed by Schumer. Yeah, that was what was interesting to me. Signed by Schumer, suggesting he agreed and went along with it. Um, what what was the what was the impetus to get Manchin to lay that out? Was was that was Schumer involved in earlier deal making that got Manchin to do that, Haley? Yeah, yeah. And and John, you've you've sort of insinuated that you believe Manchin is the one who leaked this. Um, but I'm not I'm not so sure of that. Uh, you know, if you read the Politico story, which is Burgess Everett is the one who obtained this document and he's a great reporter. Um, there's sort of a line in there that sort of caught my eye where it says that Manchin had or you know, Manchin had been sharing this document with people um recently with other se- Democratic senators to sort of prove because it, there, there's been reporting this week, I think, in the Washington Post and places just like sort of, I think, coming from the White House that's like, oh, Mansion and Cinema have not, you know, shared any details with us. How dare they, you know, be this like so opaque about what they want? Um, and, you know, I think sort of behind the scenes Mansion was, you know, sending this around to people like, look, I, I told this is what I told uh, Senator Schumer. And um, so I, I'm not sure if it was another senator or him. Um, but what I do know is it sounds like he's not budging for now. Uh, you know, there was this late night meeting with him and uh, cinema and some White House officials. And, you know, he comes out of it and he's like, I think we're going to get a deal. Uh, I just I just really need them to understand I, I'm at the 1.5 trillion. Um, and, you know, going back to what you said, Steve, about numbers, I'm interested in you, what you two think about this. Uh, there's sort of this very quickly spreading talking point among uh, the left on Twitter, the Twitter left, uh, which is sort of, you know, comparing uh, military spending uh, each year over 10 years uh, with this $3.5 trillion, um, you know, saying it, it, it's not as much as we would spend on the military. And, 
um, it, it's actually three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. You know, they're sort of breaking it down. Um, which, when you get into this, we we do you know do ten year windows for a lot of these bills or five year windows, and um, which which is different, you know, than we do like the annual defense uh, spending and those kinds of things. Um, but there's a lot of hi- hypocrisy. It's 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 either like a monumental, you know, game changing once in a generation uh, investment in social needs, or it's oh, it's just a uh, you know three hundred and fifty billion dollars a year, which to some extent there's you know hardcore leftists who very much view it as this is just the bare minimum, you know. Um, but for congressional Democrats, this you know this talking point to me doesn't really uh, hold water. Um, especially, you know, considering Mark, uh, Mark Goldwyn from, uh, I believe the, the committee for a responsible federal budget has a tweet this morning saying, um, you know, I, I dare you to find one person on this website declaring that build back better is actually just $350 billion a year who described the Republican tax bill as a $150 billion per year, uh, uh, bill, um, so I, it, it is interesting to me how this debate is sort of evolving from, um, you know, this is a monumental that once in a generation thing to, um, you know, th- this is not as big as you, the media would like you to think. Um, so I'm interested in, in your thoughts on that. Can I jump at one point first? Yeah. So uh, just one point is that when when I see those comparisons to our 10 year spending on the Pentagon on the defense budget. That to me just underscores how huge this is. The idea that, you know, I guess so what, over 10 years, the defense budget would be what? In the, in the six trillion dollars, six to seven trillion dollar range. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're talking about in these many years. So I mean, imagine telling the American people we are creating a new, a new Pentagon with a new, <laughs> a new Marine Corps, a new, a new Air Force with all the planes and all the missiles and and a new army, um, except it's all on domestic social spending over 10 years. I mean, that is an, that to me, actually, it's, it's the, it does the opposite of what uh, the progressives are doing. To me, that just underscores how big this is. And it is hard to, to give perspective. You know, you have, it's very hard for people to comprehend these big numbers. And so, and one, one frame of reference I've always used or lately is, you know, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. I mean, back, back when, back when we were debating about debt and deficits, uh, it was originally projected to be 1 trillion, obviously inflation's taken effect since 2010, but originally projected one trillion ended up, I believe, the ten-year cost being closer to two trillion. So we're talking about, you know, either an entire new uh, military and defense budget over ten years, or we're talking about three or four Obamacare's uh, right now. So those are just my two thoughts. And Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I would just—I think you're right. I mean, I, I would just say briefly the, the other difference is where the military component. I mean, what we're talking about spending on the military is relatively the same year over year over year. So you're not seeing a, a, a massive increase. And where you are seeing this massive increase is in so-called human in- infrastructure and, so- and social spending. I mean, it is really, you're talking about cradle to the grave government presence. And it's, you know, you go back and you think about it. I think it's, it is useful uh, to put this in, in the frame of the Obama administration. You know, Obama, I Barack Obama was fairly progressive president. Um, he, he had big goals. He chased big dreams. He spent big money. And relative to what we saw in the Obama administration, this is sort of that on steroids. And you know, think back to, you know, there was a video, The Life of Julia, that was, it made a big splash sort of on the center right. People 
um, spent a lot, of t- a lot of time talking about it and its implications. It was an Obama, I believe it was an Obama campaign video that talked about a, a young woman named Julia. It sort of took us through her life and showed at every stage, you know, the way that they would describe it is showed at every stage the ways in which government helped and made her life better. The way that I think most conservatives looked at it was showed just how dependent we have become on government because there was government at every stage uh, in every everything she did. And that video was in some ways descriptive, but in many other ways meant to be aspirational. It was meant to show people, hey, this is what government does and does well. We should do more of it. And what you're seeing with Joe Biden is exactly that. And I think that's what, what this is about. So I, I think that explains some of the the differences in the way that this is talked about. But I, but I am struck by the fact that that uh, this is we're talking about the the bigger of these bills in numerical terms in 1.5 versus 3.5. And I think the reason uh, that the explanation that you gave earlier for that, because that's the delta between the the warring sides on the, de- the Democratic side of the debate is exactly right. One thing that's struck me that's been absent from this debate, as we've talked about the kind of spending that the federal government is involved in, what the federal government should and should be doing, how much these things cost, debt and deficits, is the complete absence of uh, serious policy discussion about the things that are really driving our debt. And those are entitlements. Um, you know, there, there have, we've discussed this on, on this podcast several times, but we're now in a situation where neither of the two major political parties are on record with any sort of party-wide serious entitlement reform proposals. And yet we know that, that that's what's driving our debt, um, even if, as this discretionary uh, tab is, will, will add to it tremendously. And I wonder if either of you has been struck by that same thing. We're just not talking about this. And it is what is truly driving the national debt. Yeah, I mean, not not only are we not talking about it, I mean, a lot of the spending is talking about expanding entitlement programs, you know, should Medicare cover uh, dental program. I mean, in the first COVID relief bill back in March, a so-called COVID relief, they they expanded Obamacare. They, uh, you know, increased the the benefits. Uh, they're talking about expanding Medicaid, closing the so-called Medicaid gap. Um, I, I can't even think of all the different ways in which there are, this would be new entitlement spending in the 3.5 trillion versus the 1.5 trillion. But um, yeah, that's that's where the, the ground has shifted to, we're no longer talking about reforming existing programs, we're talking about creating new entitlements. And it's not really been um, a, much of a point of contention, Haley, from Republicans. I mean, Republicans are using sort of talking points to to express concerns about the overall size of the package, of either package, but they're not really making specific arguments about entitlement reform, the need to get it under control, despite the fact that the party from 2011 to 2016 was pretty well unified on the need for major entitlement reform. Now you have a situation where the dollars are bigger, the the situation is worse, um, and it goes unremarked upon. True. Um, and, and, you know, we've sort of seen this trend with uh, former President Trump leaving office and uh, Republicans uh, rediscovering their interest in um, in the debt and 
uh, fiscal responsibility. But um, you know, there, there's not a lot of, you know, serious legislators trying to solve this problem. Um, and I, you know, I think um, Republicans have sort of decided uh, this, you know, this is not our winning issue. This is not um, the thing that we're going to focus our time and energy on. Uh, whereas, you know, Paul Ryan was all about it. And um, it's sort of just a, a different era uh, than it was back then. So, um, you know, I I haven't been covering Congress very long. It's, I think this is my fifth year, maybe four and a half years. And, um, and never, never has it been like a, this is the story this week. This is the big thing that we all need to focus on. Entitlement reform. No, like nobody spends their time really on a day-to-day basis on, um, you know, something that is hugely important, um, but it's it's just not a, it doesn't get a lot of bandwidth really. It's, it is uh, to me, I mean, I, I won't, I won't belabor the point because I, I often do belabor this point, but it, it is such the, the sort of the perfect example of the, the failure of our political class. In my view, this is clearly the biggest issue. Um, and if it's the case that people don't care about it now, there, there is a time when everybody will care about it because we'll all have to care about it in, in a debt crisis. And this uh, is self Congress, though, Steve. Can I just, on this point, yeah. when you say there will be a time when we have to care about it, Congress, all they ever do is have deadlines and then wait until like the week before the deadline to do their job. Um, even on this infrastructure thing, yeah, I left maternity leave. They had three months to figure this out. They didn't even... Pelosi today is saying, uh, Debbie Dingell is saying that Pelosi did not know um, Joe Manchin's top line was $1.5 And I, it just makes me like, what were they doing while I was gone? Because I left. Right. We were debating these things. I come back. Um, it, there hasn't been much progress until this week when they have the deadline. Uh, and, and so, you know, for even even bigger things like that, um, you know, this is this is their pattern right now, which is to wait right up until the moment when they need to figure it out. Um, you know, extend things, do some procedural tricks. Like, t- for instance, today that the House is still in September, technically, um, because they they just kept the legislative day going. Um, it was sort of as a uh, appeal to moderates. You know, they had this agreement. Oh, we'll, we'll vote on Thursday. Well, it's still Thursday in the House. Um, but it, H- Haley, it, can I interrupt you? Uh, so sure. how long? How long can Thursday? When Pelosi says forever. they'll be vote today, it can it be can today be Thursday forever. forever. Right? It can. I just want to yeah. confirm. So why not? I like. I had a good Thursday. Let's. It was the weather was beautiful. Let's keep it Thursday forever. I mean, does that mean I don't age anymore? Because that mm-hmm. I would. I could get into that. I could be for that. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's 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 dwell on that for a minute because I think that's a really interesting and important point. What we're seeing play out here is, I mean, I'll just uh, understate it, not the way um, anyone envisioned the legislative process working. What, Haley, how how would this, in in a functioning Congress where members are held accountable and they more or less legislate the way that that um, they're intended to, how would this be different? What, what would this process have looked like? Right. So, so it would be very different and it would not be a, you know, a conservative outcome. I will say that it would be a, let's get things that my district would like into this bill. Um, so uh, you would have uh, 
what would change all of this is if leadership was not determining the outcome. And, um, you know, you have Republican leaders whipping so hard in the House against uh, members voting for this. And, you know, there may be a dozen, there may be um, just a handful who end up supporting it. But if it were just, you know, a package that members could hop onto and get their, you know, pet projects into, which most spending bills, things like that, uh, sort of turn into these days. But, um, you know, if if Congress were really seriously doing a, um, a regular order process on this, there would be a, a, amendment votes that would be, um, you know, it would be a very different bill, but it would also be not, not a, cons- it would, you know, they wouldn't do indi- entitlement reform in it. Uh, because again, members, it's, it's not popular, but what's popular is, uh, let's get money to this, uh, road in my, in my state. Let's, let's get money to build this bridge in my state. Um, which, you know, we sort of saw with earmarks and, uh, back in the day, but, um, yeah, especially for an infrastructure bill like this, that's, that's sort of how it would end up being. Um, I don't, it would, again, like Manchin is doing, it, it would not end up being as large as progressives want. And he made the point yesterday, if they, if they want those things, you know, they're going to have to elect more liberals. Um, and in an evenly divided uh, Senate in such a, uh, a closed margin in the House, um, you know, it, it would not end up uh, as large as Democrats are planning to pass through reconciliation. But um, that's not to say that, you know, Congress couldn't approve anything um, interesting or, or big, um, you know, which sort of the, bi- the bipartisan infrastructure package um, to people like Manchin reinforces that, hey, uh, compromise is still possible, you know, um, that it's still possible. And so uh, while you have progressives who are ready to nuke the filibuster to sort of just uh, to throw that kind of thing to the side, um, it, Manchin is sort of being reinforced in his opinion that um, it, this is possible to do big things to pass uh, large, large amounts of money for infrastructure and things that I support um, as long as uh, we can get a vote on it in the House or or if uh, if progressives would back down, so um, it, it it is an interesting thing, but I I can't tell you exactly how the bill would end up, but it would be very different. <laughs> it would be very much. I mean, the process, John, would be much much more bottom up, right? I mean, committees yeah. would would right, work on right. the on the process, and 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 it would not be as top down as it is. Are there are there other differences in how this sort of should work? Uh, to what we've seen than what we've seen unfolding here? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate here because, I mean, part of the reason we're in this situation is because of the filibuster, which conservatives obviously obviously like and think is keeping even worse things from happening. Uh, But by keeping the filibuster intact, Democrats' only shot for passing something is in reconciliation, which they only get, you know, once a year, twice a year, whatever, whatever it actually is. So that's why they come up with this huge Christmas tree and aren't taking things one at a time. And if they took things one at a time, I don't know exactly what would pass, what wouldn't pass. I mean, it would be uh, a more normal process. You would be able to uh, perhaps actually debate the specific pieces. You know, does does dental coverage for Medicare make sense? A lot of people would say yes. Um, I think that's, that sounds, it's probably pretty popular, even though a lot of conservatives would say it's actually a boondoggle uh, for various reasons. So uh, I think that's 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 one reason. But as, as Kelly pointed out, um, you know, Manchin really cares about the filibuster, and uh, he does think that. And, and Republicans who went along with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, they think they may have already gotten what they really wanted most, which was shoring up the filibuster, and that was the primary motivation for a lot of the Republicans in the Senate who went along. I mean, 
a lot of them agree they like they like the roads and bridges they like it all they like the substance so that wasn't the only reason uh but they they do feel that the bipartisan bill helped shore up the filibuster but as like my first point you know the filibuster is the reason why reconciliation is so big and such a christmas tree because it's their one shot the democrats to get everything through right now one one point on that john um which is sort of demonstrated uh this this congress back in the trump administration um you know the margins here are so slim, at least in the past, the time that I've been here, past five years, that, you know, when, even if they were to get rid of the filibuster, um, if Republicans still didn't have the votes for the Obamacare repeal, um, even, you know, through reconciliation. Uh, Democrats still are really struggling with um, what they're trying to get through right now. Um, it, there's there's more support in the Senate right now for a 20-week abortion ban than y- getting the Hyde Amendment uh, repealed. So, like, that. The, this Congress is more conservative than than people uh, sort of give it credit for in terms of what would happen if the filibuster went away, um, and it, it it keeps being demonstrated demonstrated in these like sort of chaotic reconciliation uh, negotiations. And um, it, again, back to what Manchin said, if you want a three point five trillion dollar bill, it, people are going to have to elect more liberals, um, which. It just sort of gets lost in all the in the media coverage of all of this. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to I um, shift in a moment to uh, the politics of all that and whether Joe Manchin is right that we, we can see Democrats elect a lot more liberals. Um, but but let, let me spend a moment on with, with both of you since you've spent time up on Capitol Hill this week talking about what is it like to try to cover this? I mean, it's so chaotic. There's so much going on in both the House and the Senate. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to, to get time with, you know, ask questions to the, the leaders, particularly on the Democratic side in, in this case, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. But in some ways, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are what they say is as important or more important in some ways. What's it like? I mean, what? How do you when you go up, uh, Haley, on a, you know, pick any random day this week? Do you go up knowing what you want to get? Do you? How do you? How do you think about organizing your day to do the best reporting you can do? Sure. So um, part of it's when votes are going to happen. So I was there on Wednesday. We had um, two other of our dispatch staffers there on Wednesday. Ryan and uh, Audrey were there, um, and. Which was awesome because I can be like, hey, you go stand outside the House steps and catch members during votes and uh, Ryan go stand in the Cannon Tunnel. Um, and, and, you know, during that time, they were talking to members where I sent them. And then uh, I was standing outside of Pelosi's office, which a lot of Hill reporting, especially on weeks like this, um, when when it's really comes down to a few people like Manchin. Uh, Democratic leaders, a lot of Hill reporting can just be standing outside of uh, doors and in hallways and just sort of waiting to see when they emerge. Um, and so I was I was outside of Pelosi's office for maybe an hour or two um, during votes waiting for her. And uh, it, the Hill is an interesting place. And, you know, on a, 
on a very important week like this week. Uh, you expect to see some interesting people. You, sometimes the president does meetings with uh, members of Congress. Um, while I was there, Woody Harrelson uh, rolls up and has a meeting with Speaker Pelosi uh, on Wednesday of all days when you know they're getting ready to pass uh, government funding, avo- avoid a shutdown, talking about the debt ceiling. Um, and she sort of used him as like a human shield when she came out. Uh, she did not want to talk about what was going on with infrastructure. Um, she, she just had a meeting with, uh, with this actor. He's in town uh, filming, uh, a, a, I think, a show about the Nixon years. And um, so, I mean, it, 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 Capitol is an interesting place. Um, you, so you sort of, you organize it around when votes are going to happen. You're able to catch uh, members of Congress um, during those. Uh, you know, there's, for instance, today, there's going to be a Democratic caucus uh, meeting at 1030 in the morning. Um, and so you sort of wait, you wait in the hallway before then you, you catch members on their way in, uh, just sort of take their temperature of what's going on. And then on the way out, of course, you're like harassing them. You're like, what happened? Did you, did you say anything in the meeting? Uh, uh, what stood out to you? And you just sort of ask those questions about, um, what you didn't get to hear as a reporter, you know, what, what, what goes on behind closed doors. Um, but of course, I mean, there's, there's other very important parts of this, which is like, like I mentioned, Burgess Everett is, uh, behind the scenes, uh, obtaining this memo. Um, so uh, you sort of, you, you talk to senators about, uh, what's bothering them, what, what they're hearing. Uh, it's, it's funny. I was, <laughs> which I shouldn't mention this, but, uh, you, you get access to these lactation rooms now that I have a baby and, um, I'm hanging out in there and it, doing the pumping and uh, a reporter from Politico comes in because I think she also has a baby. She was just on the phone. She, she, she did not know more than I did, which was reassuring, but she was, you know, making calls and was like, well, what are you hearing from the White House? And um, what are you hearing from progressives? And um, just, just confirming things. And, um, but on a week like this, you know, when everything is so up in the air, um, most people don't know more than anyone else at this point. Uh, it, there's, you know, there's, there's not reporters who are like, this is how it's all going to shake out uh, because we, we do not know <laughs> how it's going to shake out. Um, you can make guesses, you can talk to people, but uh, it's, it's very much in the air as of right now, uh, which, of course, this will publish later. But um, it's, it's sort of chaos this week. And, and how much in a typical week? I mean, this is not a typical week, but how, how much as you think about your reporting process, Haley, how much time is spent doing what you've just described, which is waiting in the hallways, you're hoping, you know, maybe certain members walk by you, you position yourself strategically to, to, to get lucky in a sense, to talk to the members you want to talk to. How much of your reporting as you cover Capitol Hill and everything that's going on in Congress is that? And how much of it is, you know, getting the cup of coffee with the staffer who is playing a key role behind the scenes in teeing up his or her boss on issues like this or texting members of Congress to find out what they're saying in an environment where they're not saying it to everybody else too. How, how, what's the balance there and how do you go about that second um, sort of less public part of your job? So like for meetings with staffers, um, usually I reserve those for like the committee work weeks or, or weeks when this is not going on. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you're, when you're here for a couple of years or when you have a job that requires that you sort of have relationships with people who can answer some of the immediate logistical questions. Like um, when I was at CNN, I was uh, their house producer for a while. So I have um, people I can text and be like, well, what time is this vote? Like, uh, you know, what is going on with uh, the, the process here um, in, in democratic leadership? And so, um, you know, on weeks like this, you're sort of 
doing shorter calls, texts, doing those sorts of things. Um, and then you sort of reserve the the relationship building for when you have time for it. Uh, but I, I will say also, like, it, it also depends on what kind of story you're writing. So uh, uh, some of my colleagues this week were covering the Afghanistan hearings. Um, it You're not really spending as much time uh, in the hallways doing the shoe leather reporting uh, for something like that because you're, you're watching what's going on. You're, um, excuse me, doing the analysis for that. And um, yeah, so I, it does depend on the story because um, sometimes you need to talk to 20 members of the Democratic caucus. Sometimes you need uh, really just uh, one person. Um, so, so when I first started here, actually, I was uh, writing a story and I really wanted to talk to uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. And I remember hanging out during house votes and I, she was talking to um, Max Rose, who is not in the house anymore. And it was after votes. She was talking to him for like 30 minutes. And I just sort of stood there <laughs> looking at her for, for that entire time because she was like right in the doorway to the chamber. And I was just like waiting right outside um, and, and was able after that conversation to talk to her. So, I mean, part of it's just strategically, if you're looking for a specific member of Congress or specific senator, um, finding their their entry and uh, exit points uh, to, to their respective chambers and um, sort of stalking them. Um, and it, <laughs> there are, yeah, there, there are some senators like Cinema. I don't even know really how she gets to the to the chamber. She has sort of a, a different way of getting there versus more public ways of getting to the chamber. Um, so it, you know, good reporters sort of know, um, it, well, this is how Senator Sass gets to the, the Senate sam- chamber. And, you know, John Cornyn always comes through the basement. And so I'll just wait here for him. Um, so, so a lot of it is just that, uh, looking for what you need at, the, at a given time. And John, you had a, uh, a big scoop this week, um, about Senator Manchin and the Hyde Amendment. Uh, can you tell me about, uh, what you reported and also then tell us how you got it? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I spoke briefly uh, to Senator Manchin on Wednesday night. And I asked him about this issue uh, with the Hyde Amendment. So the Hyde Amendment, uh, it is legislative language uh, that says no federal funding of abortion uh, should uh, go to, there should be no federal funding of abortion except in rare circumstances, uh, rape, incest, uh, when the life of the mother is endangered. Uh, That is typically applied to, um, uh, you know, in the appropriations bills that fund the regular medic, the traditional Medicaid program. Uh, but the Democrats in the reconciliation bill are trying to create this new Medicaid program. It's called Medicaid-like, but it's basically the federal government administering a Medicaid program that's exactly like Medicaid, except it's only administered by the federal government in the 12 states that didn't expand Medicaid under Obamacare. And because it's done through reconciliation, uh, this program, it, it, one, it doesn't have the Hyde Amendment language on it. Two, I don't, I don't think the parliamentarian would let this be passed with 50 votes. So Democrats would have to allow it to happen. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting away in the weeds. The big question is, what will Joe Manchin do? Joe Manchin is a 50th vote. He is uh, a pro-life Democrat. So I was uh, sitting outside the Capitol on Wednesday night, and I saw him as he was going to his car, and I said, uh, Senator, you've been very firm on keeping the Hyde Amendment on appropriations bills. Are you concerned at all about that issue on reconciliation? He said, certainly. And I said, in, in this new Medicaid program, he said, yeah, we're, we're going to keep high, the Hyde Amendment on. I said, in this new Medicaid program, he said, yeah, it has to be, it has to be, that's dead on arrival if that's not in there. And so I just included the whole exchange because Manchin, reporting on Manchin and his comments, it's kind of like how people hang in every word of the Pope and you're trying to like interpret like, well, what did he really mean here? Uh, you know, it's the same way with people talk about like, well, he said two tracks, but he also said it shouldn't be conditional. So what is he, 
what is he saying here? And so I don't know, you know, will will Manchin A see all the Hyde problems that the pro-life groups see? Uh, you know, will he really stand firm on that? I, you know, I don't know. That's up to Senator Manchin. But I just reported what he said. Um, in, in terms of getting to Haley's point about the whole reporting process, I mean, I've been wanting to ask Manchin this question for several weeks. I reported, you know, back in July, Raphael Warnock, the senator from Georgia, introduced this bill in the Senate on Medicaid. And I said, I saw him in the Senate. I was like, does this does this fund abortion or not? He says, it funds health care. Next question. I said, well, does it fund abortion or not? It funds health care. Next question. I saw him again last week and he just, he was talking to reporters, talking to reporters. And I asked him this question. He just went silent. I was like, well, don't you think, <laughs> don't you think the people deserve to know like what your bill does or doesn't do? And so anyway, I've been wanting to ask Manchin this question for a long time and I've, I've been missing him. And so I just, I saw that earlier in the day he had been, he was, you know, it's kind of like going fishing. Uh, you know, you have to know, you have to, you take a guess where the fish are going to be. Sometimes they don't bite. Sometimes they don't want to talk. Uh, but Manchin had earlier in the day taken a gaggle of reporters from the Capitol building to a uh, Senate office building and was in a talkative mood. So I was just sitting outside on the Capitol steps uh, when he was walking to his car and there were two other reporters around at six o'clock in the evening. And I had 40, 45 seconds uh, to chat with him as he was literally getting into his car. So, you know, uh, as Haley said, it's a, it's, it's, it involves uh, luck a lot of the time. And that was, uh, that was a good bit of luck right there. Uh, reporting is fishing. I like that. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. Uh, let's, let's end with just a moment on the politics of all this. Um, as you, as you watch the debate unfold, particularly on the democratic side, there's emerged this chasm, a massive gap between moderates and progressives. Um, it, as I watch it, it reminds me a bit of the the fights that Republicans had over the last decade between the Tea Party and what was derisively called the establishment Republicans. Do you see, John, uh, any similarities there? And and uh, if so, what are they? And do you see any differences between the way? Yeah, you're, you're saying among the Democrats, <clears throat> the split between progressives and moderates, the same as the Tea Party versus the establishment. Could you? Sorry. Right. Yep. I don't think it's going to be that big. I don't think Kirsten Cinema is likely to be successfully primaried over this in three years. I think attention spans are very short and that it will depend, you know, by 2024, people will have forgotten about this. I'm also deeply skeptical uh, that the entire Biden presidency rides on whether it's a $1.5 trillion bill or a $3.5 trillion bill. Um, I forget the exact polling here, but earlier this year, one of the pollsters asked, uh, has Joe Biden specifically done anything for you? And something like 30-some percents of Americans said yes. And this had happened after they had sent out new rounds of checks, direct checks to people that went in the mail, that Biden signed, just as Trump had signed before. People weren't giving him credit for that. I don't see for years to come that people are going to think, oh, well, I'm getting dental care on Medicare uh, because of Joe Biden and the Democrats. I think that you know people will take their benefits. Uh, they won't really think too much about who owes them. I don't think Republicans are going to push back about it. We're going to have, uh, you know, th the debt's going to grow. And there may be inflation, there may be, uh, you know, a debt crisis eventually that hasn't hit yet. Uh, but I don't see this, you know, being some game changer one way or the other in terms of politically within the Democratic Party or just between Republicans and Democrats in, in 2020. I don't, or 2024, 2022. Um, I don't see, I, I, I could be wrong, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of pundits out there, you know, especially on the left who say, you know, the entire Biden presidency is riding on this. And now if what they're really saying is that I think these policies are great and they're important and they're going to do good, uh, that's one thing, but I just don't buy the political argument that 
you know, Biden will somehow uh, just, you know, be doing great politically if if they pass 3.5 trillion instead of 1.5 trillion. I would guess the politics are slightly better if they pass a smaller bill. There's less of a sense that even even though this is again a gargantuan amount of money, I think that the general sense that things are going too far, there is inflation. Um, if they did the mansion mansion sized reconciliation, I think they'd be better off marginally. And to to Haley's point earlier, I mean, I think that the just the the fact of this chaos when you look at how this is unfolding, you know, people look at Washington and and see the the level of of crazy. Um, even if it's hard to appreciate the the magnitude of the spending we're talking about, everybody can can see that the process here has been pretty crazy and and seems to be uh, Congress not functioning very well. Uh, we we will leave it there. Haley's got to run up to Capitol Hill, uh, do some reporting. I'm guessing John, you probably have to do the same. Uh, but thanks for taking the time to to chat with us today. I think uh, you've shed a lot of light on what is sometimes an inscrutable process. So very helpful. Uh, Thanks a lot. quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.